Welcome to the Bob Harden Show, bringing you news and commentary to keep you informed and enjoying life on the Paradise Coast. And now, here's your host, Bob Harden. Good morning. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you part by the good folks at Johnson's Air Conditioning. Johnson's Air Conditioning is Naples' longest established air conditioning company. They do terrific work. They take care of us. You can find out more and give them a call. The website is johnsonsairconditioning.com. Also brought to you by Life in Naples magazine. Be in the know and stay up to date by reading Life in Naples. The website is lifeinnaples.net. We have a terrific show for you today. And as usual, on Monday morning, we have Mark Schulman, the founder and publisher of HistoryCentral.com. He'll be joining us to talk about current global events. Larry Reed is the president emeritus of the Foundation for Economic Education. We'll talk about an uncommon woman who served, well, she's got such an interesting background in Montana. We'll also visit with Jim McTagg. He is a Barron's former Washington bureau chief and author of many murder mysteries. We'll visit with Jim as well. It is September the 18th, and on this day in 1793, George Washington laid the cornerstone to the United States Capitol building, the home of the legislative branch of American government. The building would take nearly a century to complete as architects came and went. The British set fire to it. It was called uh, to use during the Civil War. Today, the Capitol building, with its famous iron cast dome, an important collection of American art, is made up of Capitol complex, which includes six congressional office buildings and three Library of Congress buildings, all developed in the 19th and 20th centuries. As a young nation, the United States had no permanent capital. The Congress met in eight different cities, including Baltimore, New York, and Philadelphia before 1791. In 1790, Congress passed the Residence Act, which gave President Washington the power to select a permanent home for the federal government. The following year, he chose what would become the District of Columbia from land provided by Maryland and Virginia. Washington picked three commissioners to oversee the capital city's development, and then they, in turn, chose French engineer Pierre Lafont, Charles Lafont, to come up uh, with a design. However, Lafont clashed with the commissioners and was fired in 1792. Uh, a design competition was then held with a Scotsman named William Thornton submitting the winning entry into the Capitol building. In September of 1793, Washington laid the Capitol's cornerstone and the lengthy construction process, which would involve a line of project managers and architects, got underway. Now, Lafont, while fired for the design of the Capitol, he ended up designing uh, the city's, uh, Washington, D.C.'s city's streets and uh responsible for all the circles that you see in Washington, all designed to protect uh, Washington, D.C. In 1800, Congress moved into the Capitol's north wing, and in 1807, the House of Representatives moved to the building's south wing, which was finished in 1811. During the War of 1812, the British invaded Washington, D.C. and set fire to the Capitol on August the 24th, 1814. A rainstorm saved the building from total destruction. Congress met in a nearby temporary quarters from 1815 to 19. In the early 1850s, work began to expand the Capitol to accommodate the growing number of congressmen. In 1861, construction was temporarily halted when the Capitol was used by Union troops as a hospital and barracks. Following the war, expansion and modern upgrades to the building continued into the next century. Today, the Capitol, which is visited by more than 3 to 5 million people each year, has 540 rooms and covers a ground area of about 4 acres. It also houses a collection of some pretty bizarre individuals as well, but uh, that's a totally separate story. Anyhow, many people don't realize that in the War of 1812, the Capitol burned, as did the Library of Congress. Well, a U.S. Marine Corps F-35 fighter jet has gone missing in South Carolina after its pilot safely ejected the aircraft, sparking a search by military officials. The pilot's ejection and parachuted safety into a northern Charleston neighborhood at about 2 p.m. on Sunday. Military officials have since appealed to online posts for help uh, from the public to locate the aircraft. Pretty bizarre. It'd be interesting to find out why he needed to eject if there was some sort of emergency going on. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, needless to say, pretty anxious to get that aircraft back. <clears throat> pretty important equipment and classified as well. President Biden has been telling some big ones. Uh, here's a couple of examples. 
He never taught a single semester-long course at the University of Pennsylvania, mused on on Thursday, but when he was asked to uh, teach political theory at the Ivy League school, I taught at uh, University of Pennsylvania for four years, and I used to teach political theory. And folks, you'll always hear, every generation has to fight for democracy. <laughs> Biden made a dozen or so public appearances on campus, but never taught a regular class, according to the Philadelphia Inquirer. What a lie. Biden also, on a call with the rabbis before the Jewish high holidays, Holy, holy days. I was, uh, you might say, raised in synagogues of my state. You think I'm kidding? I'm not, said Biden. What a liar. In a speech on Bidenomics, President Biden said, particularly for African Americans and Hispanic workers and veterans, you know, the workers without high school diplomas. <clears throat> he actually said that. He's a racist. President Biden. And a fool. He should be, uh, he's incompetent, as uh, President Trump said. He should be impeached, if for no other reason, just as pure incompetence. <clears throat> just hours after Texas Attorney General Kim, Ken Paxton was acquitted of state impeachment charges, he sent a scathing warning to President Joe Biden, who is facing similar calls to oust him from office. On Saturday, Paxton released a letter to the Biden White House telling the president to buckle up after defeating the sham impeachment the sham impeachment coordinated by the Biden administration was Liberal House Speaker Dade Phelan, or Phelan, and his kangaroo court has cost taxpayers millions of dollars, disrupted the work of the Office of the Attorney General, and left a dark and permanent stain on the Texas House, Paxton letters read. All 12 Democrats plus two Republicans, Senators Robert Nichols and Kelly Hancock, in the jury voted for impeachment. With no evidence, mind you. Remember, the, the, <laughs> they admitted they had no evidence. The jury needed 21 votes to confirm the impeachment, but a two-thirds majority was not reached. The weaponization, and here's a quote, the weaponization of the impeachment process to settle political differences is not only wrong, it's immoral and corrupt, Paxton letters continued. The Republican criticized the Biden administration for infringing upon Americans' rights, promising the president that the time will come for him to face the same political persecution he targets towards conservatives. Finally, I can promise that the Biden administration the following, buckle, buckle up because your lawless policies will not go unchallenged, Paxton letters read. Uh, we will not allow you to shred the Constitution and infringe on the rights of Texans. You will be held accountable, the letter read. Good for you, Paxton. Again, it should it, it really is, it, it just cast a whole uh, stain on the, the uh, House and the Senate in Texas. What a, what a shame that they actually did this. Former President Donald Trump put out a statement on True Social, Saturday to support the GOP, Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton, after his acquittal on 16 articles of impeachment. Congratulations to Attorney General Ken Paxton on a great and historic Texas-sized victory, he wrote. I want to congratulate his wonderful wife and family for having to go through this ordeal and winning all in capitals. Uh, that is uh, President Trump, former President Trump. It's vintage Trump. <clears throat> California's filed a lawsuit uh, against some of the th world's biggest oil and gas companies, alleging they've been lying about how fossil fuels have contributed to climate change, which has spawned more and more powerful storms and wildfires. The civic suit was uh, filed in the state superior court in San Francisco and argues that the storm has caused billions of dollars in damage and seeks compensation through a fund financed by the companies. For more than 50 years, big oil has been lying to us covering up the fact that they've long known how dangerous the fossil fuels they produce are for our planet. That, according to Democrat Governor Gavin Newsom, said Saturday. Uh, California taxpayers should have to f shouldn't have to foot the bill for billions of dollars in damages. Among those named in the suit are Mobile, Shell, Chevron, Co uh, ConocoPhillips, and BP, and the American Petroleum Institute. This ongoing, coordinated campaign to wage meritless political lawsuits against a foundational American industry and its workers is nothing more than a distraction from important national conversations and an enormous waste of California taxpayer resources, that according to the American uh, Petroleum Institute. And that's said to their, in response to this suit. And of course, the whole climate change thing is meritless in and of itself. It's a theory that... Uh, 
carbon dioxide, a, a trace element in our, in our uh, atmosphere, is responsible for quote-unquote climate change. Actually, it's responsible for photosynthesis. And what we need to do is, instead of this nonsense, is plant about a billion trees around the world. That would help increase the level of uh, intake of carbon dioxide and exhaling of the, of the plants of uh, oxygen. In order to comply with, by, by the way, the globalist net zero climate goals of the World Economic Forum and the United Nations, taxpayers would need to spend a staggering $75 trillion, a group of leading analysts have revealed. To put the figure in context, in 2023, it's estimated that the total amount of money in circulation around the world is roughly $40 trillion. And they want to spend $75 trillion to quote, solve this problem. Nevertheless, the public will have to dig even deeper to cover the demands of the global elite to achieve aggressive international climate change goals. The impossible net zero goals for carbon emissions set forth in the United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change are expected to be met by 2050. And uh, what a joke. It truly is uh, just going off in the wrong direction and a total waste of resources. Uh, we should be drilling for oil and uh, drilling, keep making energy inexpensive. That would help save the economy. Well, an armed man was detained by security and later arrested by police before the start of an event with Democrat presidential candidate Robert F. Kennedy Jr. on Friday evening when the Hispanic community in Los Angeles. According to sources, the man arrived at the event and claimed to be employed... Uh, by, well, I'm going to just check who this is. Well, that's our next guest, uh, Mark Schulman. He called, called a little early, so uh, happy to get him on the show. And nevertheless, uh, yeah, the, the beat of the story is the fact that uh, RFK said, you know, I'm still entertaining a hope that President Biden will allow my secret, me Secret Service protection. I'm the first presidential candidate in history to whom the White House has denied a request for t protection. And that is just wrong. Of all people that should have protection, a guy whose uncle and father were both assassinated for political purposes, uh, he should have uh, Secret Service protection. This segment of the show brought to you by the good folks at Johnson's Air Conditioning, uh, Naples' longest established air conditioning company. I hope you visit the website, johnsonsairconditioning.com. Also brought to you by Life in Naples magazine. Be in the know and stay up to date by reading Life in Naples. The website is lifeinnaples.net. Coming up, Mark Schulman. He's the founder and publisher of HistoryCentral.com. That and more right here in the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Here on the Bob Hartman Broadcasting Network. I'm Bob Harden, the host of the Bob Harden Show. One of my favorites for breakfast or lunch is Lulabee's Diner, providing great service, fabulous food, and a rockin' good time. Lulabee's Diner is a throwback to the 60s, complete with great music and a fabulous 60s decor. What I like best is a blend of great food, great value, and terrific service. Most of the friendly waitstaff has been part of Lulabee's for years. I enjoy the great choices for breakfast and lunch, and you'll find the menu has everything and anything to satisfy your taste. Lulabee's offers catering, party platters, lunch boxes, and more. Lulabee's Diner will quickly become one of your favorites for breakfast or lunch. No reservations are needed. Check out the website at lulabees.com and stop by Lulabee's Diner, open from 8 a.m. until 2 p.m. seven days a week. Lulabee's Diner in the Green Tree Shopping Center at the corner of Immokalee and Airport Pulling Roads. Stop by Lulabee's Diner for fabulous food and for a forever cool rockin' good time. Thank you. 
Collier County Sheriff Kevin Rambaugh says the number one reason the elderly become victims is isolation. The Collier Senior Center goes a long way in keeping seniors connected with the community and with each other. The Collier Senior Center, located at 4898 Coronado Parkway in Golden Gate, provides comprehensive information regarding services and resources that affect the quality of life of older adults and their caregivers in Collier County, empowering them to maintain independent and meaningful lives. Here's Esther Lully, director of Collier Senior Center. Everyone, every senior is welcome. There's diversity there. It's vibrant. It's a caring atmosphere. So there's a reason we offer the services and programs that we do. We want to help enrich the lives of senior members and provide support to their caregivers. Want to find out more? Visit CollierSeniorCenter.org. That's CollierSeniorCenter.org. Or call the Collier Senior Center at 239-252-4541. That's 252-4541. Welcome back to the Bob Harton Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harton. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. We're providing you news and commentary rooted in a commitment to individual liberty, personal responsibility, limited government, and the rule of law. Coming up, we're going to visit with Larry Reed. He is the President Emeritus of the Foundation for Economic Education. Right now, as I mentioned before the break, we have Mark Schulman. He is the founder and publisher of a terrific multimedia website. It's called HistoryCentral.com. I hope you'll check it out. Mark, thank you so much for joining us here on the show. Always a pleasure, Bob. Thank you, Mark. So, as usual, you'll be talking about current global events. Uh, any update on Ukraine? Yeah, a couple of different upgrades in Ukraine. It gets, uh, and then Ukraine gets involved in all sorts of other geopolitics. So, first of all, on the battlefield yesterday and the day before, the Ukrainians made some significant tactical advances. Uh, how significant this will be, it's hard to say, but they're making clear advances. Earlier this week, they knocked out two major uh, Russian naval vessels. They knocked out a submarine, and they knocked out um, a landing ship, a big landing ship. They also seem to have knocked out a missile ship and two patrol boats. And they, um, they're basically denying the Russians the ability to, to, to um, use their ships on the Black Sea. Hmm. So that's a major strategic change, so, um, so to speak. And they've also have begun additional um, attacks um, within areas of Russia. Um, for um, you know, air bases and other places, so all of these things are having a major impact. Um, you know how much we'll have to see. Now that ties to, of course, the visit by um, North Korean leader to Russia, where he met Putin. Yeah. And clearly, the Russians want to receive um, armaments from the North Koreans. I mean, you know, this world is upside down, right? When we think about it, it was North Koreans who used to get arms from Russia. It was the Iranians who was getting arms from Russia, and now Russia's getting arms from Iran, <laughs> Russia's getting arms from North Korea. Um, so these are, you know, very strange times when it comes to these sort of things. So, so what's a North Korea going to get from Russia in exchange? Okay, well, it sounds like uh, they're going to get some, some technological help in their missile programs. Mm -hmm. uh, that's what they want. They've, they've had a number of failed satellite launches. Of course, the Russians have had a failed moon landing recently, so they're, they're, their tech programs are not in the greatest shape either. Um, and um, listen, they can always use food aid. It's North Koreans still do not produce enough food to feed <clears throat> to feed their people. Yeah. And the one thing Russia does do is it produces a lot of grain and other, other food products. So I would assume that, now, again, the North Koreans are under strong UN sanctions, and of course the Russia doesn't care, but they'll be violating the sanctions. Interestingly, the Russians actually denied there was an agreement after the meeting because that would have been a violation of sanctions. So at least the face of it, they seem to pay some attention. Now, uh, on top of all of this, um, Zelensky is heading to the United Nations this week. This yeah. is the week of the United Nations General Assembly. He'll be speaking at the United Nations. He's trying very hard to get some of the countries that are sitting on the fence, um, off the fence, and supporting Ukraine. He'll also be going to Washington. He'll be meeting with senators. Um, I'm probably meeting with Biden as well, as well as um, I assume he'll also be meeting congressmen as well as as well as senators to try to shore up support there as well. So he has a busy week. 
we're a long way from the first year of the war was Lidsky was afraid to leave the country. Do so I recall that I recall uh, reading that the international court has taken up uh, the conflict between Ukraine and Russia and uh, with the idea of providing some judgment against Russia for its aggression and breaking international law. I uh, realize they don't have any teeth. In other words, they can't enforce whatever they whatever they decide, but uh, it could be important going into the future. Right, absolutely. They're, they're, they're doing it at the moment. And, of course, there's also the, this, the civil rights violations that I'm taking, oh, human rights, excuse me, not civil rights violations. Yeah. I mean, Putin cannot leave Russia at this point because there's an arrest warrant for him everywhere. Uh, so it really gets uh, complicated when it comes to these things. Now, with additional moving pieces and moving pieces in this world right now, we had this past week. We had um, the um, the Chinese foreign minister meeting with uh, our farm with our uh, secretary of state for basically two days of meetings, and now he's gone to meet with the Russian uh, Russian government. Um, so after the North Koreans met there, so. There's a lot of lot going on when it comes to all these things simultaneously, um, but um, the bottom line it's going to be determined what, what happens on the ground to some extent. So uh, um, I read, I think that uh, right now Russian can uh, uh, produce each year about one tenth of the artillery needs for this war in Ukraine. So they really do need the support from North Korea. But can the North Korea really provide that kind of support? No, I mean they can provide temporary support. I mean you know they can they, they have stockpiles of artillery that they haven't used, obviously, mm-hmm. and they can provide some of those stockpiles to Russia. There's a question of how, what the quality of those stockpiles are, and some of them have been sitting around for 40 or 50 years. I would not want to be the artillery man who had to fire those shells and worry that they're going to blow up in my face, obviously. Yeah, great Which point. A lot of them know that will be. Um, look, the, 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 this war has turned into this grinding war where munitions are being used at a tremendous rapid rate, the Ukrainians have the advantage that we're in the same situation. We can't produce enough either, but there's massive efforts right now in the West to ramp up production. Now, there's a huge factory going up in Texas that will more or less double the U.S. production of artillery shells, and the Europeans are doing the same. So it will take a year uh, for the U.S. And the, um, and the Europeans to catch up in production, which is a long time if you're you know, in a battlefield. Right. They will catch up. And the United States has that industrial strength. And people forget what the United States did during World War II. And I'm not talking about the victories on the battlefield. I'm talking about the industrial might that that came to bear. And we still have that. It's a little bit different, and it's a little more complicated today. Things take longer. But the U.S. still has that, and so does the EU to a larger extent. And everyone's woken up. So production is going forward as fast as it can. Mark, we have so much more to talk about. Can you stick around? We need to take a little break. Absolutely, Bob. All right, we're going to have more here on the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Are you looking to buy or sell a home? Make it a convenient and stress-free experience by calling the dynamic and trustworthy husband and wife team of Megan and Matt Chionis with Gulf Coast International Properties. Find out about their unique and complimentary post-closing concierge services not offered by other area agents. Matt and Megan Chionis give you the competitive advantage to command a premium price for your property. They personally attend all showings, create a marketing strategy for your property, and offer that complimentary concierge service to your potential buyer. This hands-on approach has helped them set several sales records in Pelican Bay and many at near-record prices. Megan and Matt Chionis understand that as an affluent buyer-seller, your needs and desires are unique. You deserve this level of service. Megan and Matt Chionis are passionate about the Naples lifestyle and they want you to enjoy it too. Call Megan and Matt Chionis with Gulf Coast International Properties at 239-269-5310. That's 239-269-5310. Do you have questions about your retirement? Ameriprise Private Wealth Advisor Jason Nardella with Nardella Financial Group, a private wealth advisory practice of Ameriprise Financial Services, LLC, can help. With the exclusive Confident Retirement Approach, you'll work together to develop a retirement roadmap to get you where you want to go. 
Call Nardella Financial Group today at 239-325-1041. That's 239-325-1041. Office is located at 9015 Stratuscale Court, Suite 103, Naples, Florida. The confident retirement approach is not a guarantee of future financial results. Investment advisory products and services are made available through Ameriprise Financial Services, LLC, a registered investment advisor. Bob Harden Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harden. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. I want to welcome aboard new advertisers, Megan and Matt Jonas with Gulf Coast International Properties. They do a terrific job. They give competitive advantage by providing premium price for your property, and they personally attend all showings, create a marketing strategy for your property, and offer a complimentary concierge service for your potential buyer. You can find out more by giving them a call, Matt and Megan Chionis with Gulf Coast International Properties at 269-5310. That's 269-5310. We continue the conversation with Mark Schulman, the founder and publisher of HistoryCentral.com. Again, Mark, thank you so much for joining us here on the show. My pleasure, Thank you, Mark. So uh, what's happening in Mexico? Well, very interesting thing took place in Mexico. Uh, I guess it was yesterday, the day before. And, um, there was a Mexican independence parade, and Russian troops participated as part of the uh, presentation, shall we say, dressed in full Russian uh, armed uniforms and everything else. Um, and, of course, it's quite a uh, upheaval about that. The Ukrainian ambassador protested. The Americans were upset. And it just shows that Mexico is sort of playing both sides of the game. They've not been very straightforward in support of Ukraine. They have not participated in, in sanctions against uh, Russia. And uh, so, the, you know, the Mexicans, quote-unquote, are not always our best ally, let's put it that way. Uh, we have a long history, obviously, that's a tortured history with Mexico over over hundreds of years, frankly, you know, we can go back to the Mexican-American War, so we have a tortured history. We're neighbors, we're mostly good neighbors, but with a bit of some problems, let's put it that way. It's not the same thing as our relationship with Canada, let's say say it that way. I can't help but ask about, uh, apparently uh, El Chapo's son has been released to the United States. I don't know what the significance might be of that, but and apparently his wife has been released, if I'm not mistaken. So there's that to comment on, if you have any comments, and also the fact that the uh, Mexican-United States border has been declared the most dangerous in the world. Well, I mean, look, um, there are two parts to that. It's clearly, well, I guess you, I, would, I would say the Russian-Ukrainian border is the most dangerous in the world, but okay, let's, uh, the most dangerous peaceful border. Let's, let, let, let's, let, let's rephrase that a little bit. Okay. Um, but, but, but yes, I mean, look, it's, it's a real problematic, a problematic uh, issue because you, have, you do have drug gangs, and although most of the drugs do not come over the border in the direct way, they come through the ports and uh, smuggling through the ports like Los Angeles ports and other ports in the United States. Hmm. Um, you have violence in that part of Mexico. They still have never gotten fully control of the, of the gangs in Mexico. Uh, the, the governments of various kinds have tried and with greater or lesser success for the last 40 years. Um, but um, it makes it for a great deal of um, a great challenge. And these Mexican cartels have a tremendous amount of money. Yeah, um, and um, we don't have a good a good solution to be quite honest with you. I mean, we we send uh, DEA agents there undercover. We interdict. There's some some you know below the below the horizon military action that takes place there, um, but they're strong and they have support of the local people because people's livelihoods depend on it. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's it's a real problem. That's a long border. It is a long border. That's the other part of it, obviously. It's a long border and not well populated in so many places. Um, So a lot of patrolling is, you know, it's well patrolled, but there's a limit to how well you can patrol something that's that that long. Thank you, Mark. um, So uh, any developments in China and Taiwan? I I, I really actually wanted to put a little bit of context because I've... I had an interesting conversation uh, last night with someone very much in, in the know, 
in the geopolitical area, and he's in touch with, and, I, and I've been sort of poo-pooing um, the fear of China invading Taiwan, and I had to step back a minute last night because I was speaking to him. He has he works with a number of large Taiwanese companies, and he was telling me last night how those companies previously were gung ho on investing in China because they were wanted to show they could build relationships and that the future was relationships with China, and that was the direction to go. And all of a sudden, those companies said, "What a mistake we were making! This is not going to happen. Um, there's nothing you know we can do to." improve relations, and now they're very fearful of the potential um, invasion. Of course, you know, invasion, uh, you know, he, he gave me a, an anecdote which says a, a, a little bit, which is, um, you know, they, they, they talk in Taiwan how the fact of the matter is they'll, they'll overwhelm Taiwan um, with a huge wave. What do you mean a huge wave? Well, they're going to put all the Chinese troops on the, on the, along the shore, and they'll all spit, and that will create a wave so big that it's going to overwhelm Taiwan. And that's more of a sense of fear of what 20 million versus you know, the Chinese uh, population, um, what they could do. Yeah. On the other hand, again, you still have the problem that the Chinese have no experience in an amphibious assault. It took the U.S. Uh, quite a number of Pacific landings until they got it done. They certainly couldn't have done D-Day at the beginning of the war, leaving aside, you know, the abilities of the number of landing trips, etc. So I'm still um, rather, <clears throat> well, I'm still rather optimistic that China's really not going to try anything. Hmm. And again, we come, down to the, we come down to the question of what happens with China as a, as a declining power. Uh, so those are big, big questions. And of course, you know, you have, you have the issues of, of, China and um, American companies, and what they did to Apple in the last week is, is very problematic for Apple. Let's put it that way. Yeah. Uh, by so we'll see. Yeah, I um, heard. I heard us tell you what. Wonder if you make a comment on this. I heard that actually the Chinese bloated uh, the population. They they are touting the fact that they have 1.3 billion people. The fact I heard one statistic said there's really only 800 million people in China. I don't know. I mean, it is less than they say. That's, that's clearly the case, and it's declining. Yeah, that's the key factor. It is declining, and that has a major impact. You know, it's interesting. Uh, the interesting fact is that the expectation now is, in another starting in another ten years, the whole world population is going to begin to decline. Yeah, and so that's something we've never thought about. And you know, as we were growing up, I'm sure you remember being a fear, the fear that the world population was going to increase so so greatly that we'd never feed ourselves. Right. Well, what does it mean when the world population begins to decline? No one's really thought about that. Well, it could so, be, actually, the consequences could be worse. Right. Well, we don't know. That, uh, they're, they're, they're things both, both ways, I guess. If, if AI takes over a lot of what we do, maybe it's not so bad. I don't know. Well, the the other thing um, I wanted maybe you comment on is that apparently uh, we are, of course, building our capabilities and making chips here in the United States. And apparently now the plan is to, to produce chips here in the United States and then send them uh, to Taiwan for completion. Have you heard that? And if so, could you comment? Okay, it gets complicated. So I know actually a little bit about it. And, and uh, literally I was with someone who knows a lot about us last night. Um, you have different companies, right? So you have some company like Intel. Yeah. Intel's our largest chip manufacturer. Um, I think the largest chip manufacturer in the world. And they uh, have fab factories where they produce uh, the chips uh, in the United States, in Arizona, and a couple of other states, and they produce them in other places in the world. They actually have a, they have a, a large factory in, in China. They have a factory in Israel. They have a factory. They're building a factory in Germany. They basically are worldwide producers. Uh, the chips are designed mostly in the United States and, and partly in Israel. Um, so it's a good American company with worldwide production. Mm-hmm. Um, there are some smaller American companies that um, do some some of the found some of the original work, and they they may ship some of the some of the work to, to Taiwan. But the Taiwanese companies are opening up uh, fab factories here in the United States. Oh. Um, so uh, so TMC, which is the largest Taiwanese company, and um, competes with Intel for to be the largest chip producer. The other ones that produce all the chips for Apple is. Um, building a huge plant, I believe, also in Arizona. 
Huh. Um, so uh, the CHIPS Act that the um, that was passed last year has created an incentive for almost all the companies to build plants in the United States to produce chips. And I think it is beginning to work because almost everybody is, is building at this point. Yeah. There's huge investments because these, these plants can cost 5 to $10 billion to build. Uh, so you're talking about tremendous investments to, to build plants like this. Well, thanks for that clarification. There is a clear understanding that we cannot rely on Taiwan. And there's, we don't rely on China at all for, for chips. I mean, the Intel factory in China produces chips for the Chinese market. It doesn't right. really export anything. <clears throat> um, but we can't, because of what we just discussed a minute ago, the strategic nature of Taiwan, we can't rely in the medium term on Taiwanese chip production. So I think all effort is being made to produce alternatives, not, not to the companies, mm-hmm. but the companies themselves creating plants to produce. And I think we're seeing that happen. So it was one of the more successful, successful it looks like. Again, we'll only know five years from now when we look back. Yeah. But it was one of the most successful legislation recently that really created this incentive for companies to, to build here. And again, this is the most strategic um, aspect of, uh, of American industrial might at this point is, yeah. is the production of chips. Well, thank you for your clarification on that. Before I let you go, any comments on what's happening in West Africa? Sure. So what we've had right now is um, those companies like Burkina Faso and um, Nigeria, where there have been um, where there have been uh, revolutions recently, military coups, to be honest with you, what we call them, um, have now banded together and created their own defense organization of all the all the evil countries. I'll call them for the moment, uh, so they can be a counterbalance to the democratic countries in Africa that were threatening to intervene. So it's a strange situation at this point. Um, and again, we, you know, you look back at history and you see all these military coups all those, over all these years in different places. And it's so difficult to go back. And they so don't, you know, they, they re- refuse to return power to civilians um, in so many places. Uh, military, military takes over and they think they know, they know best. Yeah. Um, and it's a real problem because one of the issues is in a lot of these countries, the military is the only efficient running organization. Yeah. Often it's also the most corrupt organization, so it's a balance. Well, thanks for that clarification. Mark Schulman, again, the founder and publisher of HistoryCentral.com. Terrific website for kids of all ages, including you and I. I hope you'll check out HistoryCentral.com. Mark, really appreciate your commentary here on the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Have a great week, Bob. You, thank you. Thank Bye-bye. you as well. And by the way, uh, the threat that we see coming from the military and what he described is something that I'm concerned about here in the United States as well. When people gain power, they won't give it up. And uh, we're seeing slowly but surely our rights uh, being washed away. We've got to be careful and vigilant about that. All right, coming up, uh, we're going to visit with Larry Reed, President Emeritus of the Foundation for Economic Education. That and more right here on the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Two-thirds of parents prefer educational options for their children, with 40% strongly preferring options for their child's education. School choice is a growing movement, one that is already lifting thousands of kids across America. The Optima Foundation, a 501c3 nonprofit corporation, was founded to support the establishment and expansion of superior quality schools of choice. Optima's goal was the successful launch of Hillsdale College Varney Charter School, Initiative Classical Academies, and other schools of excellence across the state of Florida, serving kindergarten through the 12th grade. The mission is to train the minds and improve the hearts of young people through a content-rich classical education in the liberal arts and sciences with instruction in the principles of moral character and civic virtue. In a terrific product of the process, Naples Classical Academy has already opened here in Naples. You can find out more by visiting the website Optima.Foundation. Help children in Florida optimize their educational opportunities. Visit www.Optima.Foundation. 
Do you suffer from joint pain in your shoulders, hips, or knees? I was suffering from debilitating pain in my knees. On a referral, I saw Dr. George Markovich with the Institute for Orthopedic Surgery and Sports Medicine. He successfully treated my symptoms and pain for several months. Finally, having exhausted all alternatives for pain management, Dr. Markovich and I agreed that surgery was my best alternative. Dr. Markovich replaced both of my knees in 2006, and I now have full range of motion in both knees, and I have no pain. I now play golf and exercise free of debilitating pain in my knees. Don't suffer needlessly with joint pain. Call orthopedic surgeon Dr. George Markovich with the Institute for Orthopedic Surgery and Sports Medicine at 482-5399. That's 482-5399. He did a great job for me, and he'll help you too. Bob Harden Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harden. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by Golf Shore Playhouse, changing lives through exceptional theater experiences and building a 44,000 square foot performing arts center in downtown Naples. I hope you'll check it out and get tickets for some great performances. The website is golfshoreplayhouse.org. Uh, coming up, I'm going to visit with Jim McTagg, former Barron's Washington Bureau Chief. Right now we have with us Larry Reed. Larry is the uh, present emeritus of the Foundation for Economic Education. Larry, thank you so much for joining us here on the show. My pleasure, Bob. Thank you, Larry. Tell us about the Foundation for Economic Education. Okay. We are an educational organization focused on young people of high school and college age, and we instill in them an appreciation for free enterprise, private property, limited government, and personal character. And we do that through our website, which is fee.org, and also through many on-campus uh, and in-school events all over this country and sometimes abroad. Great organization. If, uh, I, if you know of anybody 26, uh, or I should say in high school or college, it would be definitely a great referral. Let them know about the FEE, the Foundation for Economic Education.org, FEE.org. Uh, Larry, you wrote a piece called The Uncommon Ella Knowles Haskell. So interesting. Maybe you could tell us about it. Okay. Uh, Ella Knowles Haskell was a remarkable woman, uh, not a common one by any means. She was born in 1860 in New Hampshire and then moved west to Montana in 1888 when she was 28 years of age. The reason she did that was to relieve her tuberculosis and she lived in Montana for the remaining 20 years of her life. And uh, she set a, a kind of record, you might say, for uh, Montanans, Montana women in particular, for all the firsts that she achieved. She was the first female notary public in Montana. She was the first woman to lobby the territorial legislature to allow women to practice law. And when she won that, by the way, she became the first woman admitted to the state's bar association and the, fir the state's first female lawyer at a time when women in the legal profession numbered maybe a few dozen in the entire country. And she was also the first woman to address a state legislature, the first to be nominated by a major party for a statewide office in Montana, in this case, Attorney General. And even though she lost that race, um, women at that time couldn't vote uh, for another 30 years. That, that might have been a reason she lost. <laughs> mm -hmm. But uh, her opponent was so impressed, uh, he's the one that won, that he appointed her deputy attorney general, and huh. then later the two of them were married. <laughs> That's such an interesting story. She must have been a very interesting and magnetic person. Do you have any comments or interest or any uh, thoughts or information yeah. about her, or her background or her personality? Yes, I found uh, some comments uh, from a Montana State University historian by the name of Richard Reeder, and he wrote as follows, How can it be that Ella so readily and successfully crashed the gender line. Her personality is a part of the answer. She was attractive, very bright, persistent, and full of grit. Um, and then uh, to that I would add that she was uncommonly appealing, uh, by no means just another ant on the anthill. She was a remarkably self-taught uh, woman in legal matters. 
She became an authority on mining law. Uh, she owned mining properties uh, in Montana, huh. and she championed the, women, the right of women to vote, becoming one of the most notable suffragettes of her time. Such an interesting story. And it really, I, in my mind, I, the context of this is that she had health issues. She moved to Montana because of her tuberculosis. Now think about the relationships that she had to create to make all of this happen. You do this through personal influence and so forth. It's just amazing that she could move there as a stranger. I would assume she was a stranger in Montana and then developed all of this influence and uh, uh, power. That's right. She was starting over in Montana at the age of 28, and she was not known there when she moved. That was the first time she was ever in the state. And uh, over the next 20 years, she uh, accomplished all those firsts uh, that I mentioned and, and uh, became a, a significant property owner and a businesswoman. I mean, quite remarkable uh, for that day. Absolutely. And uh, you think about the life that she lived, what a contribution she made. Uh, you know, I like to think about uh, you want to be a, a stepping stone, not a stumbling block on people's lives. Well, she was certainly a stepping block for the women's movements, women's suffrage, for, for just on so many fronts. What a great life she led. Yeah, exactly. And in case anybody might be thinking, well, isn't that terrible that women couldn't vote in America at that time? But, you know, for most of history, nobody could vote, neither man nor woman. Right. Uh, you did as you were told as a serf or a slave or a subject. Uh, and in Mexico, by the way, you, women couldn't vote until 1953. I'm so happy you brought that up because we sometimes we don't think we think about the uh, the difficulty the women had in order. And it, it certainly they should have had uh, rights to vote in America, just like uh, men did at the time. But, you know, how how old was that? You know, well, in fact, even the Constitution doesn't even provide for voting <laughs> for, for, for the presidency. But, you know, just years before that, people were serfs. They were the subjects of the king or the queen or whoever was uh, the, had the power at the time in that country. Yeah, the very fact of uh, anybody being uh, able to vote, to have any say in their government, is really, for the most part, a somewhat recent thing and uh, not all that common in the history of the people of the world. Absolutely. Again, uh, Larry Reed, President Emeritus of the Foundation for Economic Education. Hope you'll check out the website and introduce it to a young person in your life, fee.org. Larry, always appreciate your commentary here on the show. Thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you, Bob. My pleasure, indeed. All right, coming up, we're going to visit with Jim McTigg, former Barron's Washington Bureau Chief and author of several murder mysteries. We're going to do that and more right here on the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harton Show here on the Bob Harton Broadcasting Network. Do you have questions about your retirement? Ameriprise Private Wealth Advisor Jason Nardella with Nardella Financial Group, a private wealth advisory practice of Ameriprise Financial Services, LLC, can help. With the exclusive Confident Retirement Approach, you'll work together to develop a retirement roadmap to get you where you want to go. Call Nardella Financial Group today at 239-325-1041. That's 239-325-1041. Office is located at 9015 Stratistel Court, Suite 103, Naples, Florida. The Confident Retirement Approach is not a guarantee of future financial results. Investment advisory products and services are made available through Ameriprise Financial Services, LLC, a registered investment advisor. Blue Provence Restaurant is a favorite dining destination for many Neapolitans, including Linda and myself. Blue Provence, located in a historic building in the heart of Old Naples at Creighton Cove, offers a mix of French bistro cooking with bold, fresh Floridian flavors. Experience award-winning cuisine at Blue Provence and enjoy one of Florida's most extensive, eclectic, and fun wine cellars. Dining your choice of the popular Eden Bar, the intimate Courtyard Garden, or the beautiful Provencal Caribbean Dining Room. Enjoy a wonderful and memorable evening in a casual and relaxed atmosphere that includes a taste of Provencal hospitality. Blue Provence is open seven days a week, all year round. Visit BlueProvenceNaples.com for reservations, everyday specials, and coming events. That's BlueProvenceNaples.com or call 261-8239. That's 261-8239. Blue Provence French Restaurant in the heart of Old Naples. 
Welcome back to the Bob Harton Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harton. <coughs> Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by the Foundation for Government Accountability. I uh, help prepare elected officials to have winning strategies in the legislature. So important. And I hope you find out more by visiting the website, thefga.org, thefga.org. We have this Jim McTagg, former Barron's Washington Bureau Chief. He's also an author. He retired a couple of years ago, and he's now writing Murder Mysteries. The first is Father the Leader. The sequel to that is Shake the Money Tree, and its sequel is his latest, No Problem. Jim, thank you so much for joining us here on the show. It's it's great to be on the show, especially you know this week uh, Wednesday the Federal Reserve meets to decide whether or not to raise uh, interest rates by another quarter point or to pause. And uh, the conventional wisdom is that they will pause. I think I have to agree with that because uh, it's we're coming up on an election year, and I, I don't think the Fed has the backbone to really tackle inflation in advance of an election. That's so interesting because right now we've seen a spike in uh, the cost of some goods and some re recent reports. Inflation is not going down. In fact, it spiked a little bit in the last report. Uh, and, and many people are saying it's going to just continue that way. Yeah, I mean, one of the, you know, economists, economists who have been predicting a soft landing and who who have a uh, credibility problem if we don't have a soft landing have been making excuses for spikes in inflation so for example when the latest producer prices came in they were higher it means that inflation is moving through this supply chain and the explanation by these uh, economists trying to protect their backsides is well it's a temporary spike and gasoline prices, because, uh, you know, normally at this time of year, d demand decreases and, and pump prices go down. But, but you know, there's a, there's been a spike, a temporary spike, because the Saudis have reduced production between now and December. Well, I happen to disagree with that. I mean, people, economists here forget that we are in a, uh, a, a, uh, warm war with Russia and China. And Russia and China and their ally, the Saudis, are trying to exacerbate inflationary pressures in the United States, especially in advance of an election. And so uh, I think that the Saudi will extend their oil cuts beyond December, number one. Uh, number two, the Chinese have been very active in Venezuela. In fact, uh, I think it was last week, uh, the, the president of Venezuela, Nicolas Maduro, he's actually a dictator. Uh, he spent six days in China. Uh, it, uh, Venezuela is a strong ally of China and Russia. Venezuela has enormous oil reserves. Yeah. And at one point, Biden was talking about lifting some of our sanctions on Venezuela to, to allow their oil to go into the market and reduce prices. Well, that's not going to happen because China is actually running the Venezuelan oil fields. China has been siphoning off those reserves. Uh, they don't report it, but, but they're siphoning off the reserves. Hmm. So uh, there's no way that supply is going to be released. My, so my, my point is there's a concerted effort by the Russians, the Saudis, and the Chinese to keep gasoline prices higher in the United States and, and you know, make things difficult for our economy. Um, because then that, if our economy suffers, it makes it harder to uh, supply the Ukrainians, for example. So uh, if, if our economy suffers, you know, the Chinese are, are getting back at us for our sanctions uh, on them. So it's uh, to, to think that this is a temporary spike in gas prices, I think, is uh, a little bit of uh, Pollyannish uh, thinking. Yeah, of course, and I may be a lone person in the wilderness waving a flag, but uh, again, this whole climate change thing is so bogus, it's unbelievable. And uh, the fact of the matter is that carbon dioxide is a trace element 
in the uh, environment, and uh, nitrogen is far more plentiful than uh, carbon dioxide. And if you know, if you're really concerned about the level of carbon dioxide, and by the way, I'm not, and nobody should be. But if you were, just plant a billion trees and create more photosynthesis uh, to take in carbon dioxide and emit uh, oxygen. So uh, my point is this: all of this is artificial because. We could be producing our own energy, and we have massive resources with regard to energy. We could produce it ourselves, and that would totally uh, reverse the entire trend of what's happening here. Well, the uh, well, the other thing is, you know, regardless of how you feel about uh, global warming and climate change, uh, electric cars are not ready for prime time. No. So. Uh, and here's an irony, you know, I'm, I'm changing, shifting gears a bit, but the auto strike, the big three auto strike, is is kind of a suicidal, because, you know, the unions, you know, I can understand that they want pay increases, and I can understand that the, uh, the, the workers have really sacrificed them. They haven't had a, had a decent raise in a number of years, so I'm not anti-union. However, <laughs> they have to appreciate that as they raise the cost, they're raising the costs for producing electric cars that nobody wants. Uh, there's absolutely no demand among the public for electric cars by the big three. And I think the demand at Tesla is probably peaking. You know, Tesla is a lot of young, uh, early adapters. Um, and so, um, so if you're producing a very expensive vehicle that nobody wants. Uh, there is a prescription for bankruptcy. Well, that's a, such an interesting point of view because uh, right now the mayor, the uh, producers, the uh, employees of Tesla earn a lot less per hour than the in the than the current contract calls for. There is no current contract, but the previous contract uh, for uh, American automobile makers and, and for the UAW. And with what they're asking, they're going to put car makers out of business and you know quite frankly irrespective of the uh you know the, the whole notion about electric cars and i agree with that but i think uh elon musk could be the big benefactor of this entire thing well, yes and also there were there's um, there's news i don't know how accurate it is but apparently musk is refining a production method using uh 3d printers that will you know, enable him to produce car frames at a fraction of the cost that he's producing them now, enabling him to undercut prices of almost every producer in the world because he'll be so far ahead of the manufacturing curve. I mean, he's always looking at the next iteration. And so you have you have the, the auto companies here are making electric cars, the frames pretty much the way they made frames for gasoline engine cars, and it's a very expensive, uh, labor-intensive process. So um, they, they just can't win, and I feel for the employees, but uh, this is called creative destruction in an economy, and I think um, we have too many car companies in the world, and I'm not, I wouldn't be surprised to see GM and Ford and Stellantis go out of business. That's so interesting. Well, again, and uh, I did uh, read that the uh, strike, the level of strikes during high inflationary periods increases substantially as it uh, did uh, before Reagan, you know, with the Carter and uh, the other presidents. We had a lot of strikes that kind of uh, tempered down when, in fact, we got inflation under control with it now back out of control and, and high. Now we're going to see more strikes. And I, to your point, I think that, that this, this whole strike is going to uh, probably fail, along with the Screenwriters Guild and, and the others that are striking. The economy is changing, and, uh, you know, there's a whole buggy whip theory. <laughs> you know, producers of buggy whips just can't uh, make a living anymore. Uh, a lot of that yeah, it's it's, fri it's frightening. I mean, uh, I've seen AI. I, I just created a website, and instead of hiring an artist to do a uh, rendition of my characters, I had AI create a graphic. It's it's far from perfect, but it's really good. And and you know what it cost me zero. Yeah. And, and it took it took uh, less than ten seconds. 
Amazing. So that's frightening. That puts that puts uh, graphic artists out of work. Um, so should we abolish the new technology? Uh, no. no, I don't. Uh, think should so. graphic artists rethink their careers? Yes, absolutely. Jim McDay, again, former Barron's Washington bureau chief. His latest book is No Problem: Great Murder Mystery. I hope you get a copy. Jim, really appreciate your commentary on the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Bob. My pleasure, indeed. Well, that's a wrap here on today's show. I hope you enjoyed it. We've got great guests coming up for tomorrow. I uh, always appreciate your comments on the show. You can send me an email at bobhardenathotmail.com. And I appreciate your listening to the show. Really do thank you for your patronage. I hope you make it a great day on the Paradise Coast or wherever you are. Namaste. <laughs>